Throughout the Bible, God is always trying to get people to dream his dream, not just their own dream. God's dream for the world is much larger than our puny dreams. In fact, God's dream often exceeds the capacity of our imagination. God is far more creative, more loving, more encompassing than we could ever imagine. We call God's dream God's kingdom. It's his vision of how the world will be when the Lord Jesus is calling all the shots and everyone willingly or unwillingly obeys. But we all know that God's dream for us and for this earth has been marred by sin. It's been twisted and broken, out of sync with God's plan and God's goodness. And since the beginning of time, God's dream was that all people would worship him together with joy. The New Testament speaks of a church where all people worship Christ and are welcomed into his body regardless of age or gender or, or class or accent or occupation. A church described this way in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. But because we live in a world broken and fallen, full of sin and rebellion against God's dream, that church doesn't happen automatically. That kind of world will only come when the Lord Jesus returns to set all things right. And as the Bible says in Philippians 2, that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess on the earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's God's dream fulfilled. But we live in the meantime. We live in the imperfect while waiting for the perfect to come. And so we're constantly dealing with all the fallout of this world's brokenness. And that includes the consequences of racism, prejudice, and injustice. And no, we're not past this. There are some, primarily white people, who think we should already be done with this issue. That because of the civil rights movement and the progress made in our legal system and the strides made in society, that we're sort of past this. Or at least we should be. Many of our best success stories are about people of color, from TV millionaire moguls like Oprah to overpaid athletes or Hollywood stars, our music and pop culture idols, the black members of the Congress and senators, Supreme Court justices. Doesn't that show we've put racism behind us? I mean, maybe there are small pockets of it out there, a few nut jobs who haven't evolved. But by and large, haven't we ended racism and put it all behind us? Many people thought that when we elected our very first African-American president in Barack Obama, didn't that signal that the fires of racism had finally been quenched? And yet, sadly, the opposite became true. The embers of racism got fanned into flame during the Obama presidency with an avalanche of stories of police mistreating African-Americans and logs of racial distrust and vitriol are, are still being thrown onto the fire under the current president from all sides, I must say. And what this shows is that the problem of racism and reconciliation go very deep, deeper than most of us realize. There are things going on beneath the surface, things brewing and percolating, percolating for a long time that sort of pop to the surface from time to time like, like lava erupting from a dormant volcano. Issues of job and education, law enforcement, family, safety, crime, corruption, personal responsibility, poverty, prisons, Unwed mothers, irresponsible fathers, greed. I mean, the list of the social ills just goes on and on. It shouldn't surprise us in our nation is so entrenched in racial tension because we've had 400 years of it since the 1600s. We haven't totally eradicated it in the last six decades. Racism will not be eliminated in, in my lifetime just because Starbucks does bias training for all its employees. No, 
racism will not quickly go away. doesn't mean that we can't make progress and Christians should be leading the way if we really believe God loves each and every person with the same unconditional love. If we're truly Christ-centered, then we have to look at people the way Jesus does. And so when it comes to racial reconciliation in our nation, the church really has something to contribute to our culture. Writing in Christianity Today Online, Mark Galley says that the church has two gifts to offer. First is the theological doctrine of original sin. And second is the power of the local church. And let me unpack those for a moment. First, let's think about the doctrine of original sin. We believe the Bible teaches that all humans are infected with the same spiritual disease called sin. A rebellious, broken condition before a, a holy and perfect God. Presbyterians and other Reformed churches often use John Calvin's phrase, total depravity, to describe our condition. And I know that sounds pretty extreme, total depravity. That doesn't mean we're walking around drooling and dragging our knuckles on the ground just waiting to commit, commit you know, heinous acts against weaker victims. That's not what the phrase means. Total depravity means that sin has spread through the entire system. It's like when your computer hard drive gets infected by a virus. It takes over the whole thing. Or imagine a glass of water and you put a few drops of the poison strychnine in it. 60 milligrams is a fatal dose for humans. That's 0.00212 ounces, barely a few grains. Imagine that dropped into a glass of water. It would spread throughout the glass. Would you even take one sip? Of course not. That amount of poison is basically imperceptible, and yet the water is totally compromised. That's why the doctrine of original sin is so important to understand. Everything is tainted by sin, even a little bit. Our best intentions, our most noble efforts, our grand sacrificial gestures, even our greatest acts of love, everything is tainted by our separation from God and the off-centeredness of sin. That's why the prophet Isaiah could write, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Or the apostle Paul could write, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's our universal condition. And so when we look at the issues of race and reconciliation or other social problems, and maybe we just get tired of the rhetoric or we just get weary from just talking about it all the time, you have to fight against getting kind of a heavy heart that you just stop caring. Here's how it often goes wrong for Christians. American Christians, we tend to be perpetual optimists. We have hope anchored in Christ. We have hope that because we believe things can get better, that the world can get better. And so if we just get the right minds to tackle a problem, put enough resources behind the problem, get enough laws passed and programs in place, then voila, problem solved. It will just happen. But all our attempts at racial reconciliation have not turned out that way. Turns out all these racial issues are much more deeply entrenched than we realized. I don't know anybody who would openly claim to be racist in their thinking. Nobody. I don't know anybody who would say, I, you know, I hate black people or, or I hate white people. So unless we see someone wearing a white hood or sporting a Nazi tattoo, you know, we think we've solved the racial issues. But as Duke University sociologist Eduardo Bonilla Silva puts it, you can have racism without having racists. In other words, like other kinds of sin, racism permeates our lives. We're not even aware of it. 
What Mark Golley points out is that it's only by acknowledging the hopelessness of eradicating sin can we avoid despair. Even though we're praying as Jesus has taught us, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we have to give up on this utopian vision of a colorblind society where every racial problem is perfectly solved equitably. Instead, we have to focus in on what is possible, what is right in front of us, the neighbor right in front of us, the neighborhood God calls us to love, to stand up and do the right thing in our workplace or in our schools, to take personal responsibility for our own actions and attitudes, and to bring our lives into harmony with the way of Christ. It's a paradox that a robust belief in the sinfulness of humanity actually saves you from despair when you see all the crud that's going on in the world. All the evil, senseless violence, suffering of children. We need a regular reminder that only Christ can bring redemption to people and to our planet. We're not the Savior. We cannot legislate the kingdom of God. So even though we should fight against the effects and the consequences of sin in the world, we have to keep our focus on the Lord Jesus because ultimately he is the one who will make all things right. Christians who lose their sense of the depth of sin in the world and the redemptive coming of Christ, they often turn into angry social activists. Angry because they don't see the results they want. Frustrated, it's not happening soon enough. Church is too slow. The church doesn't do it the way they want to do it. Angry social activist Christians get so caught up in their issue that soon the church just becomes a means to an end. The purpose of the church is to enact their particular view of social justice. And when that doesn't happen, then they just give up on the church entirely. I think it is hard for Christians to walk the tightrope between, you know, just giving up and not wanting to be bothered or be disturbed or kind of pulling in your head like a turtle. Or on the other hand, being consumed with anger over how things are not working out. It's hard to walk that middle line, being engaged with the issues and problems at hand while staying emotionally healthy and hopeful in the face of disappointment. Anger just consumes too many people today. If a person's strategy for change is just to publicly harass their opponents into submission or to shout down people who have a different opinion, just intimidate them into silence or to use insults to demean and disrespect others, none of that has anything to do with the way of Jesus. And we all need to stand against that kind of behavior. Otherwise, Christians quickly lose their credibility in the larger culture. And that brings us to the second thing that we can contribute. The power of the local church. The local church is the hope of the world. I've said that many times. I believe it. The local church should be the visible expression of all Christ's kingdom values. We need each other. We need each other to do that. It's very discouraging to feel like you're the, you know, the only one who is trying to live your life as a believer with integrity and authenticity. And a healthy Christian community has got to be able to embrace some level of difference and disagreement, especially when it comes to complicated social issues. I don't mean on theological truths, like is Jesus divine or not. This is not a place where we as a church are going to embrace a wide variety of opinions. That's a core belief and biblical essential. But in other areas, the bond of our common love for Jesus Christ should enable us to to create a safe place where people can wrestle with What's the best way to implement the biblical beliefs we hold dear? The great strength of historic evangelical Christianity was captured in the 17th century German theologian Meldenius, who famously said, 
in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. For example, all Bible-believing Christians would say that Jesus wants us to care for the poor, right? I mean, that's something we could all agree on. But what's the best way to do that? What's the best, most effective way to care for the poor? Is it through increased taxes and more government spending? Or is it through job creation in the private sector? Or both? The Bible doesn't give us much information on that. And so there's room for Christians to disagree on the how. But think about how powerful it would be if the church modeled how to treat each other with respect and love. To break through the way our country is so polarized. I think Christians have to lead the way in creating respectful dialogue between opposing groups. If Christians who are on different sides of an issue can't come together and treat each other with respect, kind of lower the volume and the rhetoric, and find common ground in Christ, then things will just continue to get worse. If people are really interested in solving problems, then this is the only way forward. Now, my bias is that I don't believe that there are a lot of people who really want solutions in our public world. If people really wanted solutions, then they would be more willing to work towards compromise. Instead, if you look at the way our politicians vote, it's almost always along strict party lines. Every issue, it's either this way or that way, with not one in the middle willing to look for compromise. In fact, the idea of compromise is kind of mocked and vilified by extremists on both sides. This dualism is at the root of why we're so polarized in our rhetoric and why things get so emotional. To me, that means people are really only interested in maintaining or regaining power. They're more interested in power than in finding solutions. They can't compromise because it'll make it look like the other side won. And it is this issue of power that is at the root of racism. Power and the fear of losing something to some other group. Well, Jesus did have a lot to say about the lust for power. In Mark 10, when the disciples were arguing about who was going to have the best seat in heaven, in other words, who would be in the position of power, Jesus said, you know that the rulers in this world lorded over them and, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them, but among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be a servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone. For the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve others, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Ever since the shooting in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014, I've been thinking a lot about the issues of race and reconciliation and the gospel, and I've tried to better understand my own complicated history when it comes to my racial feelings and tensions. When I was born, my family mixed in a, uh, lived in a mixed white and black neighborhood on the north side of Milwaukee. I don't remember much about those early days except... Uh, I have a vivid memory of one of my older brother's birthday parties and how half the boys there were black, and that just seemed normal to me then. We then moved to southern Indiana when I was in first grade, Evansville, where my dad was the director of a social service agency that mainly worked with inner-city families, mainly black families. He was also involved in bringing local mental health clinics to inner-city neighborhoods all across the United States. As a family, we did temporary foster care for babies that were being adopted through his agency, mostly black babies. So imagine in the mid-1960s in southern Indiana, going to the grocery store, typically with my very white mom and my very white older sister and a black baby in a carrier. There weren't many, if any, mixed marriages in that part of the country back then. And I remember the stares directed at my mom. 
I knew people looked at us as an oddity. And I just remember feeling really proud of my mom and her courage. I didn't really understand racism. My school and my neighborhood were almost entirely white until I got to high school. I had one black friend who I met at the YMCA where I took and studied judo. And we worked out together a lot. Often we'd give him a ride home, but he'd never let us take him to his door. He always got out at the end of the block, and I thought it was maybe because he was poor and he was ashamed to show me, you know, where he lived. Later my dad explained to me that wasn't it. It was because he couldn't have people in his neighborhood see him come home in a white person's car. That would have caused trouble for him for being too friendly with whites. And we lived through the era of Martin Luther King Jr. and the assassinations of the 1960s and the race riots that we saw on TV and the smaller troubles that hit our own community. My dad was an advocate for civil rights in our city and yet he carried a baseball bat under the seat of his car because he often drove through poorer parts of town. So I got a lot of mixed messages from my dad about race. And when my sister decided in high school that she was going to date a black guy, my dad jokingly said, just don't bring him home. But he wasn't joking. So I was confused about how whites and blacks were supposed to get along. My high school was considered to be an inner city school because we had about 15 to 20 percent black students. But the school itself was pretty divided. We had the Votech wing on one side and the college-bound wing on the other. And only a handful of black students were in the college-bound side. So mostly we just mingled in sports teams and in band and other after-school activities. And when mandatory busing was, was implemented to enforce integration in the schools, black students were bused out of my school to other suburban schools, and nobody was happy about that, especially the black students who had to ride a bus for an extra two hours every day. So mostly I remember we just got along, sort of separate, but I don't really remember a great deal of tension or hostility between whites and blacks. We just didn't really know each other. And I think that's a lot of what's going on in our country. We just don't really know each other. Last week I talked about the phrase, distance demonizes. It's because we, we don't know each other. We don't really interact across friendship lines. That really, that's, that's how racial stereotypes and fear get reinforced. And after Ferguson, I felt like God was saying to me, okay, Jeff, what are you going to do about it in your suburban, mostly white enclave? And as many of you know, that's when I was led to become volunteer police chaplain in the city of Plainfield, not far from here. A community of 98% minorities, almost half and half Hispanic and black. And I felt like that if I was ever going ever to talk about healing our racial divide, then I, I really needed to lead by example and intentionally cross a cultural bridge and so I do this on my own time it's not part of my job I volunteer just like we ask the congregation to serve the church on your own time most of the time I'm the only white person in the room and that's good for me I can serve others in a way where I have no power no real status no authority except what I bring just as a follower of Jesus I do ride-alongs with police officers and every officer that I've met they really put their heart and soul into doing a good job for their community. I've gone door to door in apartment complexes, uh, talking with fearful families when a drive-by shooting and a murder took place right on their street. Just trying to build bridges of trust between the community and the police department. I've been with police officers when they were traumatized, trying to revive a three-month-old baby, watch the body cam video of one young officer desperately doing CPR on the child 
who was already gone. For the last few months, I've been spending every Friday at Plainfield High School, a school of 1,800 students, and not a single white student in the building, not one. Kids in Plainfield can reach 18 years old and never interact with a white person except as a teacher or a coach. That's how separate we are. I've been working in support of the school resource officers, the police officers in charge of keeping the high school safe. So I, I kind of hang out at their office. I help kids with their homework or fill out a job application, listen to them when they have to practice a speech, talk with the custodial staff, chat with the teachers. I pray with anybody who wants a word of prayer, and a surprising number do. After school, I help the police officers manage the traffic and cr uh, crowd control so students can get home safely. I'm trying to live my life by the words of Edward Hale. I am only one, but I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. And I will not let what I cannot do interfere with what I can do. That's what I do. I think in some way, maybe to honor the legacy of my father. I'm trying to live out my faith in Christ with integrity. Nothing spectacular has happened. Nothing has happened except inside of me.